That is exactly what we wanted to sing right now. Is Psalm 19. Mm -hmm. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honeycomb. Because, brethren, whenever the man of God has to get up and tell you something that may not agree with what you have heard all of your life, there is only one resolution to the matter. Right. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. We Amen. must humble ourselves before the word of God. Right. Amen. I'm so glad that we just sang the 19th Psalm, verses 7 through 10 and 14. Tonight I want to finish up a review of the prophets of God. And I was asked this morning if I could spend a little bit longer on the call to the ministry, and so I will. But what I just said is very important to understanding the call of the ministry to the satisfaction of your soul. And that is to humble yourself before the Word of God. Can you all remember the sermon I preached a few months ago? Every word of God is pure. Do you remember the eight examples? I'll not question you on all eight. But do you remember there were eight examples of how God would argue from single letters and single words to establish true doctrine? And so when we come to this subject and you have heard things and believed things, read things, and what I say doesn't match with what you've heard, read, or thought, then we must humble ourselves to the Word of God. Because every word of God is pure, and everything that is contrary to the Word of God is because there is no light light in them. That's what the Bible says. And as long as we're going to be Bible Christians, that's where we rest our faith and our doctrine and our practice. And we do not move from that position. Because to move an inch is to give it all up. And if we're going to move an inch, let's just forget it all. But we're not going to move an inch, brethren. So the call to the ministry. We have a problem with this subject because there has been so much abuse to it. Let's take a young man. He doesn't know what to do with his life. So he gets a college handbook and he closes his eyes and he lifts his eyes toward heaven, closed, and he opens that book and he takes a stab at it and when he opens his eyes, he has landed on a ministerial program. Now should we believe that that man has been called to the ministry of Jesus Christ? No. But he lifted his eyes to heaven. But he left it to a game of chance. Should we believe that that man's been called to preach? No. Okay, let's take it a step further. He's out walking down a beautiful sunny lane. The sun is shining warmly on him. The birds are chirping. And he's singing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And all of a sudden, a feeling floods his veins, and he reports later to those that ask about it, I knew at that moment that God had called me to preach. Should we be impressed by his feelings on that sunny lane with the birds chirping while he sang Amazing Grace? Is there anything in the Word of God to tell us that we ought to be impressed with those feelings that he had? Nothing. Nothing. That isn't the call to the ministry. That isn't how God calls men to the ministry. Now, what if those feelings rushed over him while a man of God was preaching the Word of God 
and he was holding the Word of God in his lap, open, and it was a King James Bible. Should we then believe that he's called to preach? No. That isn't the call to the ministry. Right. How was Bezalel called? Because he got a warm feeling about man- making fancy things before he'd ever made a thing? Or did God tell Moses, and remember from this morning, never forget Exodus 31, the first five verses, Exodus 36, the next, the first three verses about Bezalel and his call. Those feelings are not calls, and yet that is where the emphasis is placed most times. When you ask a man, how did you get into the ministry? Or how did you know that you were called to be in the ministry? Oftentimes today, he will tell you some event like that in his past. Or he will just say, I didn't know what else to do when I entered college, and so I entered the ministerial class, and I ended up graduating, and they ordained me when I got done. Or my grandfather and my father were ministers, so I chose to be a minister. Or my mother always wanted me to be a preacher, and you know she's a godly woman. You'll ask a church, the man that is your pastor or this particular brother, how do you know he's called of God to preach? How do you know he's called of God to be a bishop? And some sweet sister will say, didn't you hear him pray before the last communion we had? Wasn't that the sweetest prayer you've ever heard? And so we shake our heads and we turn back to the word of God and we say, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold and sweeter to the taste than the honey and the honeycomb. Every word of God is pure. And when you hear me say that the the purpose of the ministry, which I have in this outline that I will not complete, it's called the warfare of the prophets of God. Do you know the, the primary enemy of a prophet's warfare in life are your thoughts? Second Corinthians chapter 10 tell us, tells us that an apostle and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, their number, their number one enemy is our thoughts because our thoughts are not necessarily according to the word of God. And so the man of God has to bring them into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And so when I started this series, I warned you by saying, blow out of your mind all of your ideas about the prophets of God. A man is not called to the ministry by feelings, visions, or dreams. We don't really care if he wants it or not. As a minister, it says if a man desire the office of a bishop. It doesn't say when a man desires the office of a bishop. It says if, because some won't, and some may be qualified who don't, and they ought to be put in the ministry anyway. Jonah didn't want it, but he was sent anyway. Moses didn't want it, but he was sent anyway. The desire is so such a small part of it. A true call will eventually bring around the desire anyway. In its own time. But it may not be there up front. Jeremiah sure didn't want it. Remember, ah, Lord God, I cannot speak, and I haven't been able to since I was a child. The Lord had to correct him, just like he did Moses. The call to the ministry is not any of those things. A man does not choose to be a minister. A man does not sit and think, you know, I'd like that job. I think that job just has certain traits about it that would be neat to be a a preacher. 
The office of bishop and the office of pastor and teacher is something that God has created and he has chosen men for it and he puts men in it and he puts them in it by a very specific way, in a very specific way. He has listed the qualifications in the word of God. When another minister sees in a man all of those qualifications, he knows that God has put his hand upon that man and prepared him for the ministry. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, that isn't spiritual enough, it isn't mysterious enough, where did you get the ideas of spirituality and mystery? Because what I'm doing is telling you the Word of God. Titus, I... Let's turn to it. Titus chapter 1. I want you to see it. This is how men are put in the ministry. I looked in an ordination certificate this week that made reference to three things. This man gave us his testimony that he's saved. This man gave us his testimony that he's been called to the ministry. And this man wrote out a doctrinal statement that satisfies us. Not one word about qualifications. I have an extensive outline that I preached in 1986 on the ministry, and it is what I still use. And I can show you the list of the qualifications pulled from every section of the New Testament that deals with qualifications for a New Testament bishop. And when a man meets all of those, you know that God has prepared him for the work. When a man like Bezalel was able to work in gold, silver, brass, and stone, you know that he's ready to build something as intricate and as complicated as the tabernacle of worship in the wilderness. That is how Moses knew that God had called Bezalel was by his abilities. Look at the book of Titus, chapter 1 and verse 5. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Here is the Apostle Paul telling a second-generation preacher, Titus, in one of the pastoral epistles on how to find other ministers, other bishops. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. There are the qualifications for the ministry. Titus was left alone in the island of Crete. He was to go from city to city, go into those assemblies, and in those assemblies, if any, it doesn't say if a man desires it, if a man's had a dream, if a man has a feeling, or if all the women in the church think he prays sweetly. It's if any, if any, be blameless. And then it goes through that list. And if, if they meet these qualifications, then ordain them. That is the ordination process. That is the call to the ministry. And one man can do it. Titus was left alone in the island of Crete to go do this work, to ordain elders in every city as Paul had appointed him. That is how men are called 
to the ministry by the abilities that God gives them. How do we know that God wants a certain man in the ministry? How does another minister know that? By seeing those qualifications and those abilities in that man. And the man of God is able to recognize them more readily because he's in the office and he's been charged with the responsibility of seeing those qualifications. Remember, 1 Timothy chapter 3 that has a list, very similar to this list, and this list were both written to pastors themselves, not to assemblies for them to make the call. This is how men are called to the ministry. We do not do it by feelings. We do not do it by a rush of energy. We do not do it by visions. We do not do it by formations of clouds. We don't do it by, I opened my Bible one day, and when I opened it up and I looked at it, it was Jeremiah 3.15 that says, I will give them pastors after mine own heart. And therefore I knew that I was called to be a pastor. That isn't how we do it. And brethren, if the order of what I'm teaching you right now was followed exactly, the churches of Jesus Christ would have been spared a whole lot of men that he never intended to be in the pulpit. If the order that I'm telling you had been followed, men would not have been able to start their own denominations because no one would give them any credit. And so many denominations have been started by men who were not ordained, but were simply so-called, self-called teachers. Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Joseph Smith the Dreamer, and others who started whole denominations, and they would get a few buddies together, they'd baptize each other, and they would ordain each other. they call themselves apostles, and they would start, and if the churches of Jesus Christ had always been taught the authority of God's word and ministerial succession from the apostles, those men couldn't have had a hearing. But if those men are are run into a group of people who are not well taught, and usually those men had a gift of eloquence and charisma and power, they can move people. And when when the devil gets a hold of men like that, they can create large denominations that are the fastest growing churches in the world. The call to the ministry. Prophets of God do not choose the office, but are chosen to it by God and put into it. You know, Isaiah may have heard an audible voice of the Lord saying, Who will go for us? Other men don't hear that voice. Paul may have been knocked down by a bright light on the road to Damascus, but men aren't knocked down that way today because we have the more sure word of prophecy. And what does the more sure word of prophecy say? If any, be blameless. The husband of one wife, and then it goes through the rest of those qualifications. That's the more sure word. It's more sure. Brethren, I was walking down the road one day. Beside me were James and John. Also beside me was Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were all transfigured and looked glorious. And God said from heaven, Hear this, all peoples of the earth, I have called Jonathan Crosby to the ministry of the New Testament. If I was to tell you that, and I was to do it with all sincerity and tears streaming down my face and just the emotion showing that I must have heard a voice while I was on that road, would you be impressed? What if it was true? Would you be impressed? 
Isn't that precious? Even if it was true, you should not be impressed. What you should be impressed by is 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Do you understand why why I go to that verse and how you better believe that verse and why I say every word of God is pure? It doesn't matter if I told you I heard God's voice from heaven in the presence of all of those witnesses because Simon Peter heard God's voice from heaven in the presence of all those witnesses, and Peter said, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. And I want to do well as your pastor, and so that's what I take heed to, rather than any other claim as to how a man is called to the ministry. Bezalel is our example, where it's very specifically shown us that God put in Bezalel the ability for all manner of workmanship, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to do the work. Now, we are not left so vaguely to wonder what the work of the New Testament ministry is. Ministers have three books given to them with a total of 13 chapters telling them exactly what the ministry involves and the qualifications and the abilities of the man that can get the job done. So instead of God having to tell Moses about Bezalel, all a minister has to do is read those 13 chapters and know them well, and then look. Remember what he said to Moses? What's that one word? See. See. Can't you look and observe that these qualifications are being met? And so we have an ordination coming up this coming Sunday. Amen. Desire does not make a call. Nor do feelings, nor do visions, nor do dreams, nor does God's voice from heaven. That does not make the call. If we're going to rest in the word of God, and that is where I am going to rest, that does not make a call at all. In fact, if someone told me that they had heard a voice from heaven telling them that they were called to preach, I would know that at that point they were not. Because a man who's going to be a preacher has one word to preach, and it's not the word that he hears, it's the word that's been written. Preach the word, and that's this word, no other word. That would scare me. Because if a man's going to tell me that about his call to the ministry, what's he going to be telling his people once he's in the pulpit? He's going to be telling them about his feelings and his dreams and his thoughts and his ideas and how the Lord has blessed him through sister so-and-so when he needs to be telling people, Thus saith the Lord God. Every man should desire the office of the ministry. Every spiritually minded man, every spiritually minded woman within her place of knowing that it's an impossibility should covet earnestly the best gifts. That doesn't prove anything. The qualifications are given in 1 Timothy 3 to check any man's desire. And you can tell whether his desire goes any further or not by the qualifications that are there. Many great men of God didn't have a desire like Moses that I've used several times. And it's ability that it's to be looked for because that's the man we want in pulpits. Right. The, the man that we want in Howell, Michigan, to care for that church there is a man with ability, right. a man that's vigilant, a man that's sober, a man that holds fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, Amen. a man that knows the Scriptures and loves the Scriptures, a man that's only got one wife, a man that rules his children well and keeps them in line because he's going to have to do that with a church because if a man know not how to take care of his own family, how shall he take care of the church of God? Right. These are the things the Bible teaches. 
And this is where we rest our call to the ministry. Let's turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10, let's leave the subject of the call and look briefly at the preparation that God can make in a man. Did God make a change in Saul of Tarsus so that when Ananias came in and laid hands on him, he was ready to be a preacher of the gospel? What a change. But here's another example, and I I like this one, and it's one that I want to give you, though I have mentioned it last Sunday, to help you in your prayers. Because you've heard me say, we want to pray for a new heart. Because, and we're not praying for a regeneration to occur. We're praying for a heart fit to be a bishop, to be given to this man. 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning at verse 6. Here is Samuel telling Saul what's going to happen to him. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. Amen. Well now, did Saul become Frank? No. Did Saul become Bob? He's going to be turned into another man, however. A man fit to be king. Because Saul at this time was not fit to be king. His occupation? Keeper of the asses. His courage, hiding among the stuff at his coronation. So the Lord's going to make him, turn him into another man. It is not wrong for you to pray for the Lord to turn him into another man. And that doesn't mean he's not a good and faithful man now, but to be a greater man in light of the responsibilities of the office. I just get excited reading this. Because the Lord, he he didn't want Israel to have a king. But when Israel demanded a king, he said, I'll give you a king. And he gave them a great king. Verse 7, let it be when these signs are coming to thee that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. When this power comes on you and you're a different man and occasions arise where you need to exercise your kingly authority and show you're a different man, do it because the Lord's with you. Here's a man who didn't want to get up in front and accept a crown. How's he going to lead an army into battle against Superior odds. Except to know that the Lord's with him and be a different man. Thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt sacrifices and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. Saul began to prophesy among the prophets of God, and he was given a different heart. He still had the same one pumping blood, and he still had the same regenerate heart, but he was given a heart of a king. And we want to pray for God to give the heart of a bishop to our brother. And to turn him into another man. First Samuel chapter 10. And now verse 22. I just want to remind you. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. But if you were to go on and keep reading, you would find out that King Saul was a great king. Until he disobeyed one day. And that's we don't want to pray at all, 
We want to pray for our Lord to protect and preserve and deliver him from temptation and evil that he would never do such a thing as to turn his back on the God that has called him. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Do we believe in ministerial succession? Amen. Yes. Amen. Do we believe in ministerial succession like the Church of Rome believes in it? No. Good. Very good. Nothing like that at all. They believe that the popes descend from Peter. Peter wasn't the first pope. We don't know that he was ever in Rome. And he certainly didn't believe anything that the pope since him believed. In fact, the Bible tells us that what they believe are doctrines of devils in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the first three verses. What we believe is contained right here. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Remember, 2 Timothy is a, is a letter written from Paul to a minister. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. This is how the truth is perpetuated, by ministerial succession. We do not believe in church succession. We are not landmarkers. We do not believe that churches extend an arm and make another church, and so churches try to lay claim to some succession of churches all the way back to the apostolic period, because there's not a verse in the Bible about any of that. But there is a verse like this right here, which fits perfectly well with what Titus was to do in the island of Crete. Right. To go do the work of finding other faithful men who could hold fast the faithful word as they have been taught. And that is ministerial succession. I want you to notice what is to be perpetuated. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. The public preaching of God's word by the Apostle Paul. Right. Not secret knowledge or private instruction. And this, this verse has become very precious to me in what we're about to do next Sunday. Because he has heard much that has been taught before many witnesses. Amen. Because it is public teaching of the truth, not private speculating that you pass on to a man. Right. Because what's been taught publicly is the ministry of God's Word. The things that thou hast heard of me, that is, Timothy, the things you've heard me preach, among many witnesses, those things... Commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Paul to Timothy to other men who shall be able to teach others also. We have four generations in this one verse of ministers from the apostles. This is how the ordination process occurs. I've shown you the call. God's ministers see men that God's hand is upon them. We know God's hand is upon a man by the abilities the man has, the gifts that he has, the character that he shows, the way that he rules his family. And he has proven in those things it is not just a momentary observation. Because 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10 says, Let these also first be proved. This is how it's done. And so from one minister to another, faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And what are they holding fast? The faithful word as they have been taught. What's been taught publicly? The ministry of God's word from the pulpit by one minister is given to the next and is given to the next and has been given to the next all the way from the Apostle Paul to the present day. And that's what we believe. 
You say, can you trace your ordination all the way back to the Apostle Paul? I can show you the beginning and I can show you the end. And I trust the God that takes care of everything in the middle. I can show you the beginning right here. I can show you that I was ordained by a man that lined up with what the Word of God describes as the Bishop of Jesus Christ. That's the end. And I trust God for everything in between. Now, I've heard that said sometimes for church succession. But here's the problem with church succession. There isn't a half a sentence in the Bible about it. No church ever started another church. Never. Never. Never been done. So there isn't even a half sentence about it in the Bible, so we just leave it where it belongs. Deep sixed. That's file 13. That's the circular file. That is something that we don't want to hold to at all. That's a fable. Church succession is a fable. It's ministerial succession that goes out and takes care and perpetuates the truth of God and forms churches by baptizing believers, putting them into assemblies, teaching them, or put it, setting in order anything that is wanting, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, and ordaining other ministers to do the same thing. That's the process of ordination. Paul or, Ananias ordained Paul. Paul ordained others, and they've ordained others right down to the present time. The work of the ministry is something that you want to pray for. If you're close to 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at a verse that we have there. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. Here's a charge from Paul to Timothy. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A good soldier of Jesus Christ had better be prepared to endure hardness. Because there's going to be hardness. It's a hard job. It's not esteemed like it ought to be. It's not a popular message that you bring when you're attacking people's thoughts and imaginations and telling them to change their lives because people don't want to change. Obviously, what they're doing, they're doing because that's what they want to do. And for a minister to try to change their lives, he's going to be unpopular, but he needs to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. On that call to the ministry and on ordination, let me remind you of a couple that thought they ought to be called to the ministry. Aaron was the high priest of God. He thought he ought to be called to a higher ministry than he had. And in number because she dared raise her voice to presume on an office that God had not given her. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and 250 princes of Israel, men of renown, think that they're going to presume on Moses' office. And they come to Moses, and they say, the rest of this congregation is holy also. We've been called to preach. And Moses said, Lord, I did never do anything to these men. I haven't taken an ass from them. And God knew that Moses had never asked for the job that he was in. And look at this. This is a huge difference between men. Moses didn't want the job, and God put him into it. Those men wanted the job because they wanted it for carnal reasons. Because they liked the authority and the power, and they didn't like Moses over them. And so what does the Lord do? He opens up the earth and swallows them and all that pertain to them and burned the 250 up with fire. That's when men presume on the call to the ministry. We want to do it God's way. And if we had done it God's way, there'd be a whole lot of churches saved from not hearing anything week after week after week. There's so many more things, brethren. 
Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Is there a check on the ministry? There's two. There's the Lord in heaven. Is he a pretty good check on the ministry? Amen. Amen. Did he check Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? Amen. Yep. Did he check Judas Iscariot? Yep. Deuteronomy 13, if there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, these are the first verses of Deuteronomy 13, saying, let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and ye shall serve Him and cleave unto Him. Amen. Your second check is the Word of God. That's why the noble Bereans received the word with all readiness of mind because they believed the man that was before them was God's minister, but they still went home. Well, they went to the synagogue and they checked the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Because the second check on the ministry is the word of God. Will God, would God, would God ever lead one of his ministers into an error to test the scripturalness of the congregation over which he's the pastor. Yes, he would. How do I know that? Right here. Look at what it says. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes along and it brings a sign or a wonder to pass, he performs a miracle, but he's teaching an error. The Lord is proving the congregation to see if they will follow the word of God rather than the man doing the miracle. And I, I can't do miracles. So, it's your, it's your responsibility to search the scriptures to see if what I preach is according to the word of God. And if it's according to the word of God, you believe it. Amen. You don't argue about it. and You don't raise foolish and unlearned questions about it. You believe it. Receive the word with all readiness of mind. Amen. Like I read this morning from 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul commended those Thessalonians because they received his preached word and the preached word of the other teachers as if it was the very word of God. Right. Until you see in the Word of God that it's not the Word of God. And I want to tell you something. The Lord defends His truth. Amen. And if you're sincerely seeking the truth and you are checking the Scriptures and receiving the preaching with a ready mind, He will show you the truth if a minister has been led astray or has gone astray. Oh, brethren, there's a, Lord, there's a God that judges the preachers in His church. The Apostle Paul said, it's a very small thing if I be judged of you. Did he say that to put down the church of Jesus Christ? Or was he saying that because there's another judge that was a whole lot more frightening to him than the church of Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, it's a very small thing if I be judged of you. For I don't even judge myself. The Lord judges me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Do you know what 1 Corinthians 3 says? If any man destroy... The te- or defile the temple of God, that is a minister, defile the church of Jesus Christ, him will God destroy. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I can take you right to it and show you the full context of it. Him will God destroy.
Turn to Ezekiel 3. Ezekiel 3. Forgive my hesitation. If you had 100 points to make in the minutes for four, would you hesitate? Ezekiel 13, Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3. I'd like to show you the responsibility that is upon the ministers of God. Ezekiel chapter 3. And, all, and again, I'm not doing this to promote myself, but I am doing it to promote the office that God has created. Amen. And I'm doing this to help you in your prayers for a brother that will be put in that office next Lord's Day, the Lord willing. At Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 16. And it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Amen. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness, and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned. Also, thou hast delivered thy soul. That is God's warning to ministers and the responsibility of their job that if God sends a warning to the Lord's people and that minister does not bring it to bear, he does it at the expense of his own soul. Whether they obey or whether they do not obey, if he does not warn with the warning of God to the Lord's people, he does it at the risk of his own life and soul. Right. I hope that you see that and I hope that you'll pray for the faithfulness of the brother that we're ordaining. Amen. I want to remind you that God will protect his prophets. I have mentioned Numbers chapter 12 that tell us about Aaron and Miriam. I've mentioned number 16 with Korah. I want you to see, though, in Psalm 105, some precious words that you have probably heard quoted before, but I'd like you to read them. In Psalm 105, we have here a brief history of Israel. And before they came into the land of Canaan, while they were still wandering, before they went down into Egypt, here's what the Lord says about them in verse 13. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed. And do my prophets no harm. And if you were to go back and read Genesis 12, Genesis 20, and Genesis 26, three times, we have Abraham in the first two cases and Isaac in the third case lying about their wives to protect their wives' lives. And because they lied about their wives and said they were my, our sisters, the kings of those places took their wives. But you know, God came to those kings and said, don't you dare touch 
that man's wife, because he's a prophet of mine. Right. Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. And the warnings would be so severe that that king would get up in the morning or at that very hour and he would charge his people, don't you dare touch this man or anything he has under penalty of death because he was so frightened that anything would happen to the Lord's prophet that had happened into his midst. Touch not mine anointed. You've heard those words and do my prophets no harm. Here it is describing Abraham and Isaac from the book of Genesis before they went down into Egypt. God protects his people. Have all of you read 2 Kings chapter 1? Elijah, the man of God, has told the king of Israel that he's not going to recover. He fell down through a lattice. That king sought to Beelzebub, a false god, instead of the true god. And Elijah said, you're not going to recover. And Elijah went and sat himself down on the top of a hill. Let me tell you some Bible stories. 2 Kings chapter 1. He sat himself down the top of a hill. The king sent out a captain with 50 men. Go bring that prophet in here for telling me I'm not going to recover. They came to the bottom of the hill and said, Come down, prophet. If I'm a prophet of God, then let fire come down from heaven and swallow up all you men. Captain and 50 men are burned up just like that. The king sent, isn't that foolish? Can God blind the hearts of men? What would you do if you saw that happen? Out goes another captain with 50. Comes to the bottom of the hill. Come down, prophet. If I'm a prophet of God, then let fire come down from heaven and devour all of you. Fire falls down from heaven and devours the second 50. There's a, there's a wise man in Israel. Right. He's the captain of the third 50. The third 50 comes to the bottom of that hill. He gets, he gets off his horse and gets down on his knees. And he says, O man of God, have mercy upon me. I've just seen what happened to two of my peers. Will you please come down and go with me? Okay. So he came down and he went in with that third captain. That's Second Kings chapter 1. Now, who said the Bible isn't exciting to read? Right. They were going to go try to take that prophet of God captive. And the Lord defends his prophets. Amen. Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. Did some children make fun of Elisha on his ordination day? Amen. Or shortly after his ordination in Second Kings chapter 2? Some children came out and said, Go up, thou bald head! Go up, thou bald head! Ha, 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 ha! Look at that man, that bald head! Well, Elisha turned and cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came out of the woods and killed 42 children. Amen. God protects his prophets. Amen. Did God ever open jails for his prophets? Amen. Did he open a jail in Acts chapter 5? Amen. Did he open a jail in Acts chapter 12? Acts chapter 16. Did the Lord open jails? Amen. Did a man ever take a, a Roman scourge, flex his muscles, take off his shirt, and reach back to hit the Apostle Paul and then get stopped? Yep. Did the Lord protect his prophets? Amen. Acts chapter 21 all the way to 28, did God preserve Paul in most unusual circumstances for seven whole chapters? <laughs> And when Paul stood before Caesar, though all men forsook him, there was one man that didn't forsake him, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. 
stood with him and delivered him. And I want, I want to remind you that the Bible says very plainly in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23 that accusations are never to be brought against an elder except before two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23. It's verse 19. 1 Timothy 5, 19. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Timothy was not to receive. No one was to be allowed to speak in his presence about another minister of the gospel without two or three witnesses. That's the word of the Lord to protect his prophets from those that come along that hate them for their ministry. There's many more things that can be said on the prophets of God. I hope that you will pray for the one that we're going to ordain. I want to remind you that prophets of God have problems. And they have personal problems because they're sinners, saved by grace, just like all of us. And I want to remind you that if you were Satan, you would know that to go after the prophet of God leading a congregation can accomplish a whole lot more than going after someone in the congregation. Therefore, I want you to pray for this man that we're going to put into the ministry that God will preserve him and keep him and put a hedge about him and deliver him from all the powers of the enemy and and deliver him from temptation and evil and protect him and bless him and destroy his enemies and give him strength in his soul to combat his own flesh because it's horrible to be a pastor. As the Apostle Paul said, I keep my body under lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And so let's pray in all these different ways and many more that you may know this this week as we come toward the ordination, let's pray for our brother that the Lord will bless him greatly and make him great and protect him and prosper his way, prepare a church for him, cause it to be a happy union, support his family, bless his family and make them helpful to him in the ministry and to make him great. And may he call fire down from heaven and all the enemies of God And may he let the word of God be like a fire to burn up all the chaff of this world because there's a whole lot of it to burn up. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and may he continue according to his promise to be with his preachers unto the end of the world. Amen. Amen. Amen.